This is Glenn Crooks on Frame with a preview of the Major League Soccer playoffs, opening round matches in the Western Conference. We'll have journalists and broadcasters that cover all six teams to help set the table for the weekend. Here's our lineup. Matt Pence of The Athletic is here. He follows the Seattle Sounders, who host FC Dallas, covered by Pro Soccer USA's Armand Kafai. We've got the TV commentators for Real Salt Lake and the Portland Timbers, who will meet for the second time in the MLS postseason at Rio Tinto Stadium in Sandy, Utah. Brian Dunseth with RSL, Ross Smith from the Timbers broadcast team, they're both with us later. And the Pro Soccer USA duo of Kyle Eliason and Brittany Pergel, uh, they'll help us preview Minnesota United home to LA Galaxy. If FC Dallas had failed to get three points on decision day against Sporting KC, they would have needed some help to qualify for the postseason. As it turned out, Dallas spanked Kansas City 6-0 to close out the regular season and finish in the seventh and final playoff position in the West, four points clear of San Jose. Next up, now they got to go to a place where they've got one win in 15 career matches. That's in all competitions, uh, three playoff games included in there. They'll be at second seed Seattle Sounders. The Sounders clinched the second seed with a 1-0 home win against Minnesota. Roman Torres scoring his first career MLS goal in the 29th minute. All right, here to help us preview this uh, opening round match, Armand Kafai, who uh, covers FC Dallas for Pro Soccer USA. And from The Athletic, the longtime Seattle watcher and author of the book, The Sound and the Glory, how the Seattle Sounders showed Major League Soccer how to win over America, Matt Pence. So uh, great to have you both on. Matt, I, I looked at the attendance figure, as I always do, at CenturyLink, uh, 47297 for that regular season finale. Until Atlanta came along, Seattle like, owned all the MLS attendance records, I assume. And uh, I know you spent some time on the uh, cultivating process in your book, but how would you describe the game day experience in Seattle? And, and how did it all develop, this passion for soccer in Seattle? Yeah, it's definitely a unique scene. Uh, maybe a little bit less unique now, as you mentioned, because uh, I do think that uh, the Sounders sort of provided the blueprint that a lot of teams have followed since. So a lot of the things that um, at, at one time you could only get in Seattle, like uh, the march to the match and sort of the supporters' culture and all that, um, you can see that in, in a couple different places now. But um, yeah, it's still, I think, a, a very unique and, and authentic experience. Um, in terms of what you're going to get in MLS, um, in terms of why it sort of developed here, I think that there are a couple things. I know that uh, the Sounders have always been willing um, to sort of link their history um, with the history of the NASL team um, that played in Seattle in the 70s and early 80s. And around MLS, um, I think that the league as a whole has been a little bit um, hesitant to make some of those links. Um, and I think that the Sounders have sort of embraced that and it gives them a sense of longevity um, that I, I think it's really hard for a young league um, to sort of tap into that kind of, of longevity and history and all that. So they've done a really good job of that. Um, I think that they sort of honed in on a target audience um, that was sort of the, the downtown urban millennials and playing downtown and making it sort of a very city urban event, um, which MLS had 
had not really done that before. So I think that those couple things are the main things. And I think that you're going to see the, the fruits of it um, on Saturday in front of what should be a really good atmosphere. Now, to counter that, Armand, if you go to FC Dallas, uh, a team that's had a lot of success and uh, barely got into the playoffs this year, but under a new coach with a lot of young players, and we'll get into that as well. But I look at the, their attendance mark for that game announced 15,623 for the victory over Sporting KC. This was the, the way you go into that game. That's a must win. So here we have the counter to Seattle is you're in a an area where the support has, well, it's always been at or near uh, the bottom of the MLS ranking. So what are some of the reasons that have been discussed there? Why it's uh, deficient, I guess, is the best way I could put it. And what uh, steps might be taken to, to try to improve that situation. Well, it's really interesting, Glenn, because, I mean, you hear that from Seattle. You you see what goes on in Atlanta, and you see what goes on around MLS. You see this boom of, you know, lots of supporter culture and, you know, huge crowds, big environments. But like you said, in, in Dallas, well, actually in Frisco, there really isn't that there. And part of it has to do with that Dallas-Frisco dynamic. And sure, you say everyone drives here, you can drive far, whatever. Back to the reality, it's a long drive to get from Dallas to Frisco. I've done the, I've done it uh, coming back from Dallas to Frisco, and it is ridiculous. It's ridiculously long. You usually have to take a toll away, so there's some tolls involved. And you know, it's part of it is that distance, but you know, also even in Frisco, it, it's difficult because there isn't that much F South branding in the city of Frisco at all. I mean, you go through it, and there isn't that much. I mean, for a lot of people, they know it as the high school football stadium because a lot of the high school football teams actually play at Toyota Stadium. Uh, so it, it, it's known as that. And, you know, it, it hasn't really made a an impact, you know, in, in Frisco. I mean, the Hall of Fame, I suppose, was supposed to, you know, help that, but it hasn't helped that either. And overall, prices are going up. I think they're charging for even parking next year. And, Overall, the the environment there it, it's just something something has to give something has to change and I wonder I mean because uh, you know we've been reading obviously Chicago moving to Soldier Field uh, from a Pablo Mara story uh, the Union looking to uh, exploring movement options as well I wonder if that's going to have to be the key for Dallas because they've had the on the field success it's not like this team has been bad and no one's showing up because they're really bad. It's just no one seems to, you know, wanting to make a trek up to Frisco or, you know, even, even the city, it's even the city of Frisco itself. It's not really the big, big catch. So, I mean, honestly, to change it, I guess they have to increase the marketing. Maybe actually promote a guy like Paxton Pomacall as the face. I mean, they've kind of hinted at it, but they haven't really gone full out with that push. And, Maybe try to make a mark in the Dallas area to try to consider come to Frisco from Dallas, but it's always gonna be a tough task. And overall, I, I honestly I don't know what else they could do outside of potentially either potentially moving a stadium, which probably won't happen anytime soon. Well, they're gonna have to if they do that, they'll have to lift up that whole damn Hall of Fame and bring yeah exactly <laughs> you know, bring it with them. I mean, Matt, 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 in your reporting, have you come across uh, you know anything that strikes you about uh, Toyota Stadium, Frisco, and, and the poor attendance? 
Yeah, I mean, it does kind of um, fit back into the idea of um, sort of whenever the Sounders made the conscious decision to be a downtown team um, and sort of connected to the urban core, then you can sort of look at Dallas as sort of the very opposite end of that spectrum and a team that was they sort of came into being whenever the league was thinking that it was going to be the league of the suburbs um, and of the soccer moms who would stick around after their kids' games on weekends. I mean, I think that by the time the Sounders came around, um, I think it had become obvious that that approach had limitations. And I think that that's why you see all of these teams that are kind of starting to try to look and get a lot closer to downtown and, and change that. But then what do you really do with the teams that have invested in those different cities. I think it's a tough thing. Um, um, but I do think that, that these stories are related um, the success of the Sounders versus what Dallas has struggled to do. And they're trying to win their first MLS Cup. Seattle won it in 2016 and got to the final in 17, lost to Toronto and uh, lost in PKs to Portland last year in the conference semifinals. And so they were uh, just a couple of steps away from from, a, from another final. Meanwhile, uh, Dallas, here's a team, uh, Armand, uh, big win over Sporting KC. And you look back, they needed that win, and kind of reminiscent of 2017. You wrote about this, and I, I thought it was uh, pretty cool where you uh, relive the you know, win over the LA Galaxy 5-1 on decision day, but they needed other results and they were kind of, I, I always find it interesting when the players and coaches, maybe they're uh, keeping their eye, even they might not admit it. I don't know what the legality is, you know, as far as watching the other game or listening to it and, and, and figuring out what's going on. But uh, that, that was an interesting part of the story. Yeah, and, you know, the big thing is that they really you know, hampered on this year is, you know, we have control of our own destiny. This is critical for us. And it's, it, it's something that, you know, they, they kind of got a little lucky in the end. I mean, obviously that Wednesday, almost had that, that big Wednesday before uh, the, uh, penult- the penultimate game of the season where uh, the Timbers the drop points and uh, San Jose drop points. Those, 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 those are critical, you know, to Dallas actually – controlling their own destiny and I mean reliving that 2017 I talked to Ryan Holland and said he said yeah we did everything we they beat the Galaxy 5-1 but they they, they had to watch and see Minnesota or excuse me San Jose score that game-winning goal uh, against Minnesota in stoppage time so controlling their own destiny was something they really wanted and something they really desired and they took advantage of it in a huge 6-0 win against SKC I mean if you if, having to win a game rather than, you know, relying on other results is always the option that you want. Yeah, and uh, uh, Lucha Gonzalez, uh, the first-year coach, uh, before that game was played, the the win over uh, Kansas City said there's five games to win MLS Cup, something the club uh, history doesn't have on its shelf yet. So we're really excited to play this first game of five. So every game was really a playoff game. And uh, the the pressure and the stress of it, but uh, Matt, do you think Dallas really does have pressure? I mean, obviously their record at Century League is uh, is not good, but I mean, no one outside of uh, maybe their own little uh, group, no one expects them to come out on top in Seattle. I wouldn't think. No, probably not. Um, I think that you, I would probably go as far as to say that it would be the biggest upset of the first round, um, even probably more so than if New England finds a way to go into Atlanta and win just because you have the Bruce Arena situation up there and Atlanta has looked a little bit vulnerable 
Um, and so is Seattle. But when you look at that history, uh, I do think that, that Dallas can kind of come in and play freely. I'm going to be very interested to see how they approach the game because you would like to see them um, sort of come in and take their shot because, again, not a lot of people are, are giving them much of a chance. Um, they've got a fun young group. I think it would be interesting if they came in and just really tried to go for it um, and let their sort of talented attackers sort of run free and see what they can do. I, I sort of I suspect that it might go the other way um, and that they're going to sort of try to play to zero and, and get to a shootout. I know that whenever they played um, in Seattle, it was about a couple weeks ago, about a month ago now, um, and you guys have referenced how they controlled their own destiny, but they played in Seattle, um, and it was a scoreless game. Seattle gets a red card in the 80th minute, um, and it really felt like it was an opportunity for Dallas to to go and go on and win the game and take and really take control of their own destiny and maybe even play for a higher seed if they had been able to win that game. And even a man up, they, it just seemed like they had absolutely no interest in trying to go and win the game. Uh, and they just played to zero and time wasted and, like, I, as somebody who had watched Dallas from afar and think that they played some really good soccer, it was a little bit disappointing because I think that you would always like teams to, to play a little bit more aggressively and take their chances. So I, I would like to hope that Dallas will come in and play free um, and embrace that underdog role, but I sort of suspect that we might be in for another ugly game. Well, Armand, what do you think? I mean, what what are what are some of the things coming out of camp there as far as if they've talked about that yet? Uh, how they might go about it at Seattle. We talk about the big win over Sporting KC, and that's at home. Uh, but uh, one goal in the previous four matches, would, which included losses at Chicago 4-0, at Colorado 3-0 with a chance to clinch a playoff spot. So with all that information, it would seem it wouldn't be a shock if they played, uh, well, maybe a defensive brand. But what do you think? Well, Matt is spot on with what happened in that in, in that Seattle match. Uh, like you say, you, you saw them get the red card, and then you know they, they kind of you know sat back and you saw Jesse Gonzalez do a signature time wasting, and you're sitting there. Don't you guys? Aren't you guys? Don't you guys need a playoff win? Like, don't you guys need a win? Uh, you know, to you know keep those playoff chances uh, you know, higher and alive. Like, don't you want to go for it? And they didn't. It was disappointing. They have struggled on the road and. Actually, to say they've struggled on the road might be an understatement. They've been almost terrible on the road. And maybe we're being a little catfished by their, their recent results. Sure, they're really good results, but their results include a 5-3 win over Minnesota United, who had rotated their side after an Open Cup match, a 5-1 win over the Dynamo, who we know were unraveling at the time with the uh, firing of Boomer Cabrera and Davey Arnault, and a 3-1 win over FC Cincinnati, and it's, who, you know, we obviously know has not been good this year. And then a 6-0 win against SKC, where you're sitting there, and SKC has almost looked like a team i just given up at the end. Overall, they have really struggled on the road, and their wins have been dominant, but against uh, teams. I would, ex- I would expect them to have a, a, a specific plan going into that match. It might be something different than what we've seen Previously, it, I, I think they had some. It might not be the same as the, the, the last uh, match where they had Barrios up top. I expect them to ride the hot hand with uh, Zinedine Andrasik with how good he's been playing lately. But 
I expect them to come with specific planning. That can even be seen reading the lines of, of for the first time all year. They're closing their media uh, availability for, for trainings. That might be a sign of, hey, they're having something specific and they want to keep things very sec- secretive. So overall, I expect a specific plan, but I also wouldn't be surprised if they tried to go 0-0 and then go for it. Uh, I, I personally wouldn't want to see that. I'd want to see them, again, like Matt said, embrace the underdog role, go for it, and continue that brand that Lucia Gonzalez has and not being afraid of playing away, either home or away. But I honestly do sense a specific kind of plan where uh, they would want to you know, be careful of uh, the overload that Seattle creates on, on the wings and maybe more of a defensive uh, approach, as Matt alluded to. Uh, you mentioned Zdenek Andrasik. He, he scored the game winner for Czech Republic here during the international break over uh, England. 2-1, 85th minute goal, European qualifiers, England's first defeat in their last 44 qualifiers covering uh, 10 years, the 30-year-old forward uh, for FC Dallas. Armin Kafai for Pro Soccer USA A is with us, uh, along with Matt Pence of The Athletic. And, uh, Matt, with all this information, uh, now we look at Seattle. Let's take some specific uh, personnel uh, looks. Uh, Jordan Morris, I I would think a healthy return of Jordan Morris, uh, scored a huge goal at San Jose uh, in the fourth minute of uh, extra time in the second half on September the 29th, 1-0 road win, which really uh, helped Seattle secure that second spot. But uh, tell us uh, what Morris means uh, to the club, being healthy and effective. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that even just having him be um, back and healthy for a full season, um, coming off a serious knee injury uh, like he suffered last year, I think that the club probably would have taken that and been healthy with that regardless of of how effective he had been. But uh, I think that he has outperformed any real reasonable expectations um, for what he would look like coming back from such a serious injury because I think that he's been their best player um, pretty much since we got back from the Gold Cup um, back in July. He's just he's been their most aggressive guy. Um, you see it with the national team too. Now um, I know that they were playing against Cuba, but he had three assists in the first like 17 minutes or something uh, to go along with a goal. He's just playing so aggressively. Um, looks at home on the wing, even though he had played as a forward his whole career. Um, he's really sort of embraced that new role, and I think that. If Seattle is going to make a deep run, uh, it's going to be because of Morris taking on this leading role and sort of dragging the team forward because they they haven't really looked all that dynamic offensively um, really ever since the first month or so of the season um, when they started pretty hot. And it's kind of just come down to let Morris go to work out wide um, and make something special happen. And to his credit, he has, and I think that it gives the Sounders a higher ceiling um, than I might have thought even a month or two ago because with him playing this well, uh, it just opens up a whole lot for the rest of his teammates. Well, how about Raul Rui Diaz, the uh, uh, Peruvian international designated player? Uh, last year, 10 goals in 14 regular season games, and he scored three of the, the four goals against Portland in the Western Conference semi. Now, he's got 11 strikes, but he just doesn't seem like the same kind of goal scorer this year. Uh, do I have that right? Yeah, I think, and he's slumped especially lately, um, which is, I would imagine, a pretty big concern from a Sounders perspective. But I think that it's an example of, you actually kind of saw it with Brian Fernandez down in Portland, too, that once you start to get a decent sample size on a guy, 
um, teams sort of figure out um, the best way to combat them. And it's one thing to come into the league when no one has any tape on you and to, to really hit the ground running and be an effective player in that way. But it's another thing to be able to, to rework your game um, and adjust to an, a, an adapted defense. And I think Rudy Diaz has been fine. Um, I, I don't think that he's fallen off spectacularly or anything like that. Um, but I do think that teams have figured out how to combat him. And he's also just kind of a traditional forward where he needs consistent service. And he's not a guy who you're going to be able to just throw it up to and have him take on three guys um, and make something happen. He's a guy that, that relies a lot on service and, the Sounders kind of having been uh, unpredictable with their lineups because of injuries and suspensions and everything else. Uh, I just think he struggled to find that rhythm. Um, but if he's able to find that and if, if he finds a way to find the back of the net on Saturday, I think that that would also um, be another good sign to indicate that Seattle uh, might be a real contender here. Yeah, and Seattle with the two double-figure goal scores. Uh, Dallas with none, but the, a better goal differential on the season for Dallas, a plus eight compared to a plus three. But Armand, when you you look at the goal scores, uh, Andrzej he got off to a slow start after he arrived, uh, and uh, but but has picked it up recently and then got that big international goal. But it's an 18-year-old up top who's the leading goal scorer, Jesus Ferreira, with seven. So where uh, where are the goals going to come from uh, over the weekend in Seattle? Do you think? I, I think they're gonna they're gonna come from uh, the Cobra. We, we we look at how Dallas is on. Jesus Ferreira has you know switched to more of an advanced midfielder role as a more a number ten uh, profile, and Dallas has been you know starving for, for goals. You know, Jesus was up there, but he just wasn't, you know, getting the right spots as a forward. So they decided, all right, let's, let's go with Andres. Let's go for our our ten player, throw him up top, and he's provided a he's occupied the center back. And I think that's a very crucial part of what he does. He's been the target man, a guy. You know, maybe he's as mobile as Lucha Gonzalez wants, but he's been a target man, a guy central in the middle that you know can win balls in the air and you know make runs and poach goals. And I, I think the Cobra can provide that goal scoring threat it's interesting though because they really struggled to produce anything offensively uh, i mean sure you can get a 6-0 win against skc but against teams that are in the playoff picture i referenced previously they kind of struggled to break them down and go at them i think i think the cobras not need to uh, have a vital role in this game to you know be that guy and be that reference in the the, the top of the park but outside of that you, you can maybe rely on Jesus, but it's going to all come, come from the right-hand side and Michael Barrios, who has been absolutely fantastic this year. I think he's leading the league in uh, pure assists or single assists uh, with, thir- with 13. So it's going to go to that right-hand side. They're going to go try to find Cobra, uh, but so what? it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be messy. Armand, why, why is he the Cobra? Is that a Dallas nickname or did he have that coming in? He had that coming in. He has actually a big tattoo of a cobra on his back. And that's where the nickname, the, the cobra, came from. And it makes it easier for us to to say his name rather than on his <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah. So, so the self-proclaimed cobra, perhaps, Zdenek Andrzej. And, well, Dallas has this uh, very difficult task. And, and Matt, uh, in Seattle... You had this rock at the back, Chad Marshall, who uh, some have called the the best defender in the history of MLS, 
who retires during the course of the season. And uh, the impact from that, it, it, it certainly didn't seem to have a, a, a real negative impact. Roman Torres, uh, you know, he's been a bit inconsistent. But how did they work through all that? I mean, it certainly was, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, you could, it was heartfelt when he, when he retired and what everybody had to say and what they felt. But how did it affect the club? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think you might be actually underrating a little bit how much they've missed uh, Marshall because they haven't necessarily uh, like bled goals in a way that like Sporting Kansas City does, uh, for example. But like they really have um, struggled over the last two or three months here. I think more than at any other point of Brian Schmetz's tenure, um, his teams ever since he took over have been very compact, very hard to break down, um, really relying on that back line and building from there. I mean, they just haven't really been that team. Um, I think that Roman Torres um, picking up a, a PED suspension um, was probably about the worst timing that they could have had with that. Well, I guess it could have happened a couple weeks later and he would have missed the playoffs, which probably would have been even worse. But he got popped with 11 games remaining and got a 10-game suspension. Um, and so he, he had to miss that big chunk. And throughout that chunk, um, Javier Ariaga and Kim Kihi, they just never really seemed to mesh right. Um, there were some individual errors. They were giving up two or three goals just about every game. Um, and having Torres back could help solve that. Um, as you referenced in the intro, got a big goal um, in the finale against Minnesota. He's definitely the epitome of a big game player, but he's also hasn't played regularly in, what, two and a half months here. Um, so I think that that's a factor to watch how he looks um, against Dallas if he does start against Dallas and then whether he's able to to turn around and play a midweek game if they're able to advance, um, that could be sort of a, a sneaky factor in how Seattle is actually able to, to play in these playoffs because, yeah, I think that Chad Marshall, um, you can almost measure his impact in his absence here um, because ever since he's been uh, retired, the Sounders have not looked nearly – is comfortable and is steady at the back. And so uh, really what you're indicating there, if uh, Dallas, uh, maybe their, uh, their biggest chances for Andrzejczyk to maybe uh, somehow deal with those central defenders in a way where maybe they can uh, nick a goal and see what they can do. Yeah, I think that that's uh, definitely how it's going to play out uh, if Dallas is able to pull off the upset. All right, guys, uh, time now to uh, to predict I'm going to ask each one of you what you think uh, it's going to, how it's going to go on the weekend, and uh, maybe tell me why. So, uh, first, Armand, you uh, will you be the uh, lone journalist in the country who picks FC Dallas <laughs> over Seattle? I don't really know that as a fact, but go ahead. <laughs> what no, do you got? I won't be alone. I won't be the lone journalist. I have uh, the Sounders winning uh, 2-0. I, I think Dallas will come with, with a plan to you know defend and be a little bit more defensive, and. I think Seattle will will break through, uh, you know, through through their fullbacks, through their uh, through through their wings, through a guy like a Jordan Morris. I I, I honestly don't see Dallas, uh, you know, winning, especially their road struggles. Uh, this team really just when they when they get down, they get down, and maybe they'll be in it for maybe the first first half, and maybe a couple minutes after that. But once I think that first goal gets through, I think Dallas won't be able uh, to rebound, and I think they'll give up another goal late. Uh, as they're pushing numbers out. I think Seattle gets a nice 2-0 victory before they move on to the next round. Matt, how do you see it? 
Very similarly, actually. I also had two nothing, which feels unoriginal now. Um, but it does <laughs> seem like it, it's going to I, – I see it playing out similarly to how you described. I do think that Dallas is going to make it difficult on Seattle if they um, do, in fact, come in and just try to play negatively because the Sounders, they just haven't looked as creative um, offensively to make that sort of – that mass shell. So I think it's going to take them a good while maybe even like an hour, 75 minutes or so. But I do think that in the end, they just have more firepower. I think Morris gets one. Uh, I think Rui Diaz gets the other um, to break his goal drought um, and and that they're going to feel pretty confident even going into the conference that night. That's Matt Pence of The Athletic, along with FC Dallas beat writer Armand Kafai. Second seed Seattle versus seventh-ranked FC Dallas kickoff 3.30 p.m. Eastern at CenturyLink Field. On Saturday in the Western Conference, third-seeded Real Salt Lake will try to get their first win of the year against number 6 Portland at Rio Tinto, where the Timbers defeated RSL 2-1 way back on May 4th. Portland also getting the best of RSL on August the 31st, 1-0 at Providence Park. But this now, the playoffs, the second all-time meeting between the two. And with us to break down the match are a couple of TV commentators on both sides. First, Brian Dunseth for RSL, also the co-host of Counterattack on Sirius XMFC, Channel 157, Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. Eastern. And also with us, Ross Smith. He's the color analyst for Portland. Uh, both of them former players in the league, Dunny for a time with RSL and Ross the same with the Timbers. Well, welcome to you both. Fantastic to have you here. Dunny, you first, home field advantage. RSL finishing third in the conference. I'm wondering if that's something unexpected or, or how you thought about that as you watch the team progress through the season and then this crazy Western Conference along the way. I mean, they, they were in second. RSL was in second as late as September 11th. Yeah, I, I would say, Glenn, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to join you. Um, I, I thought that this was a playoff team based on the roster that Craig Weibel uh, and Mike Pecky had put together in the offseason. I, I kept saying at the start of the year, and I was catching a bunch of flack for it, that this was the strongest team that Real Salt Lake had ever put together on paper in terms of competition for spots. I, I still do believe that I had them as a playoff team, but I had them as a fifth, sixth or seventh playoff team, depending obviously on other results. I think uh, it, it surprised everyone that they're in a home field advantage situation. Uh, but I, I think it does speak a lot to the mentality of this group, considering Mike Pecky was fired late in the summer. Craig Weibel uh, is, is a part of that fallout with Mike Pecky's firing. He walks away from the club a couple of weeks ago. And yet with Freddie Juarez and the remaining staff, this team has really had laser focus about just controlling what they can control and allowing kind of the outside world to be in this different bubble where it didn't affect their performances on the field. So, yeah, uh, it expected a playoff spot, but most definitely surprised about home field advantage. Yeah, I, well, since you bring it up, I think that's uh, something to discuss uh, uh, Mike Petke uh, uh, eventually getting uh, fired, and then Craig Weibold uh, after that departing. And you mentioned those two together. They had uh, helped develop uh, what you felt was the strongest te team on paper in quite some time. Uh, so that 
for for the for Freddy Juarez and the rest of the staff and the players to to maintain or maybe in your eyes even improve. I don't know how you saw it, but uh, that's a that's quite a statement because that's that's a massive disruption. It, it is, and I think the one positive is you know there, there's a lot of talk about homegrown players in Major League Soccer, and for a long time, that homegrown narrative was surrounding New York Red Bulls and FC Dallas for all the right reasons. Um, but I think very quietly when you're talking about uh, a Bopo Saucedo or a Corey Baird or uh, a Brooks Lennon or a Justin Glad and Aaron Herrera. The, these kids as homegrown players, uh, 22 years and younger, I think have, have, have shown throughout kind of the, at times, very naive performances, especially on the road and away from home over the past couple of seasons, that uh, the intelligence to minimize the repetitive mistakes have come into play big time. Um, and I, I think along with kind of the leadership of an Albert Rusnak, of a Daimir Krylock, of an Everton Luis, who, in my honest opinion, has been one of the biggest signings in terms of quality to Major League Soccer. And yet, because he's in Salt Lake, he, he doesn't really get that national recognition. Um, and then obviously Kyle Beckerman and Nick Romando, uh, the, these young players have, have really grown. And I think their performances have been arguably just as just as important as the big-name players. Ed Luiz, the 31-year-old uh, Brazilian, Brian Dunseth, uh, discussing RSL as they uh, prepare for a match against Portland. Let's bring in uh, Ross Smith. So, Ross, uh, we talked to Dunny a little bit about uh, the RSL saga. Certainly a, a yeah. coach getting fired uh, midseason is, is huge news. Uh, on your end, uh, the acquisition of Brian Fernandez paying immediate dividends on the attacking side, 11 goals and one assist since he arrived midseason, but he has voluntarily entered a substance abuse program through MLS. Yet I'd heard even before that, and maybe this isn't even news, that he was missing training sessions and, you know, and things like that. So there had been issues. Tell us about uh, the Fernandez story and, and what kind of impact that's had. Yeah, well, to what you're saying, Glenn, from right from the start, you hit the ground running. And there was a lot of hype. There was a lot of excitement with the signing of Fernandez and recognizing that the Timbers, they needed that number nine goal scorer who was going to guarantee them goals, who was going to be a constant threat and a big name. And Brian Fernandez was that. And he stepped onto the scene away at Houston Dynamo. And he was lively. And the way that he showed that he could offer so much in the attack, his dynamic, his runs, and then ruthless in front of goal. And that continued on. And... Uh, as time was going, he was still banging in goals. And even when he was going a couple of games or so, and maybe teams are figuring them out a little bit. I still think the Timbers were figuring out their striker a little bit as well. He, he'd be making these fantastic runs off the ball. And I didn't think that the Timbers were always looking for him first and foremost as time was going on. So when, when people start to say, okay, well, Fernandez, he's gone off the boil a little bit. And is he starting to cool off? I just think at, at times, maybe the, the Timbers, where they have so many threats, when you think of Sebastian Blanco, Diego Valeri, that they weren't looking to him first and foremost. But as you mentioned with, with Brian Fernandez, obviously there was there was something in the background with him and and with him voluntary uh, entering into the program. You know that, uh, you know, there, there's something deeper that he is wanting to figure out, needs to figure out. There was a fantastic article about a month and a half ago in the Oregonian, Jamie Goldberg, she wrote about his background with his family and it's um it, it's sad and the recognition that he needs support and to be honest with you glenn 
the outpouring of support when this news came out that uh, uh, about him, you know, pulling himself away and, and entering into the program. The support around here, when you look on social media, the fans have got behind him. And there hasn't been uh, any fans really that I've seen pointing the finger saying, you've, you've let us down. You, you know, we, we knew that there were issues in the past. It's been, no, he has something that's, that's lingered on and he needs that support. And so where that, that's maybe been, uh, you know, just a, an undercurrent uh, of, of things and when he hasn't scored the goals in the Sporting Kansas City where he got sent off. And to be honest, in that match, I still don't quite know why he got sent off in that game. But I think things maybe just came to a head. And it's disappointing not to have him on the pitch. But I think what everybody's saying is that most importantly, that they, they get round the player, that they, that they support him, and they hope that there's better days ahead. Um, and you do see the ability, and that's what will be important in the end. But for now, the conversations around Portland are about Brian Fernandez as a person rather than as a player. Yeah, and Dunny, the and not just Portland. I mean, the outpouring of support on on Twitter, you know, nationally and internationally, you know, it it does uh, it does give us a glimpse into some of the social change where people in the past might have been angry, not understanding how could he do that. Why would he do drugs or whatever? The We don't know specifically what happened, but but things are changing and, and people understand that this could be an illness, a sickness. And we've seen that with other athletes as well, right? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, I, I personally want to put my well wishes to Brian Fernandez because I, I, I know of a couple of players and friends of mine that um, have, have been in a, a similar lane and have decided to seek help for themselves because they were going down a bad path. And I, and I think what it speaks to, maybe more importantly, guys, is the recognition of uh, mental health and the importance of mental yeah. health. Um, because, yeah. you know, Ross, Ross and I, Glenn, have talked about this before uh, on other, other, other conversations, is I think the one thing that people sometimes fail to realize is they judge the players between the white lines each and every weekend, is that there's, there's people, there's human beings underneath that jersey. And whether you're talking about players going through divorce or players losing family members or, you know, player, players missing birthdays and weddings, all of those things can affect the performance of an athlete. And I think maybe one of the most important things that we're seeing. And when you're talking about that social change is the, uh, is the ability to support and understand. And, and, and maybe more importantly, when there's a, when there's an action that leads a person like Brian Fernandez to, enter himself in there it, it in a way it's a feel-good story right it's an opportunity mm -hmm. for a young man to overcome whatever the perception of demons is that he's dealing with so i wish him all the best and you know like ross said it's 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 really bad timing for the portland timbers as an organization on the field but i think off the field um this will continue to do wonders for what i believe is is one of the premier organizations in major league soccer mm -hmm. And, Ross, I would think that, uh, you know, probably there was uh, some inkling that something was going on prior. And for the team as a whole, there's probably a sense of relief that uh, the guy is seeking help. But they also have maybe some internal things that are solved a little bit here. I mean, in, look, in a way, and I, I think, you know, Brian would would say from experience, if, of course, first and foremost, you, you want the player to be right. But when you step onto to the pitch and if you know that there's maybe something lingering and look i'm i'm just speaking off of experience not straight to the timbers but you you know that it's in the back of the minds whereas now they know that you know hopefully brian's he, he's getting the support he's in a good place 
And so you, you know, as the players, you step on the pitch and you look around and everybody's in the right mindset and they're, they're all pulling towards the same, um, towards the same goal without uh, any worries about anything else. And so I think what you're seeing is, is that in the last game and where you've been waiting for the Timbers after the, the 12 games away from home and you thought they were going to kick into gear as soon as they came back to Providence Park. It hasn't really happened. It's, it's stuttered. It's, uh, it, it hasn't found the groove. But in the last couple of games, and I looked at Sebastian Blanco, and we're, we're talking about where the focus can all come from. I think Blanco has been so key to that focus over the last two games. And Sporting Kansas City, the, the two games to go at the end of the season, um, he, he willed the team to get a result. And in the last game, especially against San Jose. And so where the team haven't found the groove, and you, you can talk about distractions along the way, I think Sebastian Blanco has been very key over the last couple of games just to be able to steer the team. And I've said this, if the Timbers are going to be successful, this needs to be Sebastian Blanco's team. And you can say, well, Diego Chara, Diego Valerian, Diego Chara, Chara for me, he, he makes sure the team doesn't lose. Whereas Sebastian Blanco needs to be the guy to make sure the Timbers go and win the games. And uh, for Blanco, he's been the most consistent player going forward this year. He's just got an attitude about him. You know he's always in the game. And so for that focus, when I get back to it, it needs to be Blanco. And Blanco, I think, is being key the last two games. I think if the Timbers are going to make a playoff push, that focus, that leadership, it needs to come from Sebastian Blanco. Uh, Blanco scoring the insurance goal in the 75th minute as uh, Portland defeated Vancouver on decision day to uh, to assure the playoff position. Dunny, uh, back on the field on your side, Nick Romando in goal. It's his last season, and there was a point where it, it really appeared that his game was fading, and there was even the notion that Mike Petke, you know, it's one of his guys, and you know he's just going to play him. Uh, but he's still the guy, and now he's got nine shutouts. He's got a 1.25 goals against, which is fifth in MLS. So uh, was there a turnaround period in there for him? Um, I, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it was a turnaround period for him. I, would think there, I, I think, honestly, it's a turnaround period for the team. And that turnaround period really did start during that Gold Cup break. Uh, at the time, Mike Pecky, Freddie Juarez, Tyrone Marshall and company uh, they took that that ten day break and they really dialed in on the defensive principles that they wanted to uh, build upon at the start of the season. And, and I know Ross will kind of co-sign on this. A- anytime as a team that you do get a little bit of a window on a break, that's usually when the manager and the assistants really dial in on the imperfections uh, on both sides of the ball. And I think from that point, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and I can't, it, it was coming into the final month of the season. RSL had conceded the, the least amount of goals uh, across all teams in Major League Soccer. Um, so they weren't scoring a ton of goals, but they were really defensively sound. And I think outside, uh, you know, letting the game get away from them as they were chasing it in Minnesota, um, for the most part, it was a, just a really good team performance. You know, Nick Romando, he, he's just, I, I, I think, in my opinion, he, he will go down as the best American keeper to play his entire career in Major League Soccer. And a lot of these statistics that he sets, I, I don't think, quite honestly, will ever be touched because of the longevity of his career. Um, that being said, Nick, Nick physically, he, this year he wasn't, <clears throat> he wasn't getting the balls that he normally gets to. He was kind of making mistakes that he wasn't normal, like we're not normally used to seeing. Um, so 
<clears throat> whatever happened between he and his family members and his close ones in terms of a conversation heading into the year, uh, that obviously led him to make the announcement, uh, I think like 48 hours before the first game on the road at Houston, that this was going to be his final season. So I think he's enjoyed it. Um, it has been a fantastic year defensively for the team. Uh, he actually, and, and Ross, I know you probably won't want to hear this, but on his final game of the season at Rio Tinto Stadium, um, <laughs> he actually said in the loudspeaker when he had the microphone that they were going to host the game and everyone kind of laughed at him. Uh, <laughs> and and, and his, uh, his shout, his home run shout came true. Obviously, there's a RSL book their uh, book their third place spot with a whole lot of help in the Western Conference. Yeah, crazy Western was, Conference, right, Ross? Uh, it, it was. I mean, decision day. You know, I, I think the question is, how do you get that every week in in Major League Soccer? Yeah. It, was, it was fantastic. Just watching the scores come in, Dunningham. I'm sure you, you you were on. I know you were on ESPN, weren't you? And you were um, in studio with it, I believe. If if that's right, that must yep. have been neat for you, just seeing everything come in and you're seeing all the goals firsthand. Whereas we're just hearing it from from the truck or or, or watching it on our iPads. You know, it must have been. It, it was great. The drama. Yeah, it really was. We we had a uh, in Bristol. I was on the big boy set. They must have run out of uh, uh, run out of anyone that uh, had any standard because I got the phone call, and uh, <laughs> it was it was Adrian Neely. Alejandro Moreno on ourselves, and we had a big board of six televisions, and we had all the games going at the same exact time, and we were just going back and forth, and uh, at one point, it just became laughable. Alejandro Moreno and I just started laughing because we kept going back to Dallas, watching Sporting Kansas City uh, capitulate <laughs> yeah. defensively once again in 2019. Yeah. Well, well, Ross, on the, on the Portland side, we, we, we talked about Romando in goal for RSL. Uh, it was Jeff Atanella at first, and then the yeah. uh, the emergency appearance of Steve Clark. And man, has yeah. he been good! Now his goals against average is second in the league, one point oh four. So, I, I you you look at both these teams; they are not juggernauts on the attacking side. But what an important uh, part of the program he's been. Yeah, I, I read somewhere. I think maybe it was a supporter tweeting out: "This needs to be a thirty for thirty story on Steve Clark from two thousand fifteen." the famous 27-second goal from Valeri against Steve Clark. Those two are best of friends from, from everything we hear being up at the training ground and, and how they've bonded. But then Steve Clark, he was supporter chosen supporter player of the year, and he went up into the capo stand in front of the Timbers Army, and he received what is the championship supporter's belt in front of him, and he thought, what a story. And here was the guy, and, and Jeff Antonelli, you have to say, out of all players to start the season, when things weren't going well and on the road, he was probably one of the most consistent players. But then when the manager gave Steve Clark a chance, all of a sudden he started to think, oh, wow, could Steve Clark really be competing for the number one spot? And even the tail end of last year, he was playing really well when he was called upon for the Timbers. And from there, once he was given his chance, I mean, he has been terrific. And when you're reading all the the, the team of the year, the best 11, best goalkeeper, I'm actually surprised. And I'm, I'm not saying just because I'm in Timberlands here and, and concentrated um, you know, my, my first and foremost on the Timbers. But when I watch other games and, and following the league closely, I can't believe Steve Clark's not considered more for goalkeeper of the year. There hasn't been one game where he's made a mistake and been punished for it. Now, he hasn't been mistake-free. There's been a couple of glaring mistakes, but I, I do say a couple, and he's gotten away with it. And so he's wrote, he's wrote that little bit of luck. But at the same time, I mean, he has made sensational saves at the same time, and he has saved the Timbers points along the way. And you know what? He's, he's charismatic. He's got a personality. And you never know what answer he's going to give you when we sit down 
and I do a weekly radio show here and I sit down with him. I have no idea which way he's going to go with things. And I tell you what, it's terrific. And so he's entertainment off the pitch. He, he gives you great sound bites. But then on the pitch, he's wild. He makes a save and he's celebrating. He's punching the air. I mean, he, he's worth the watch. And I do think he, he's worth the consideration for, for goalkeeper of the year for his play. Well, Ross, Ross he's, a nut, he's a nutter. He's an absolute <laughs> nutter. That's, oh, that, that's the best description of Steve. <laughs> he follows too, doesn't he? To the goalkeeper's yeah. having a bit of weirdness. He is definitely in there, and it's, it's great. Well, he yeah. also had a relationship with the supporters uh, in Columbus, right, Donnie? I, I, I forget. There was some yeah. ritual, and I forget exactly what it was. It, it was like a WWE, kind of like the, yes, yeah, yes, right. yeah. He loves it. He, he's a nut job. I love him to death. He's, <laughs> I got to know him a little bit during his time in Columbus. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I like Ross, I got all the time in the world for him. Yeah. I, so, Dunny, we said neither team's got uh, any players in the top 10 in offensive categories. So, uh, as we, uh, we close this a bit, I, I'd like you maybe both to, you know, address the attacking side. And what, what's your expectation here? Dunning you first. Yeah, I, I would say there's big question marks because, as I was saying earlier, with this roster uh, comes some tough decisions. And in particular, RSL finally has a true number nine. But they've in Sam Johnson, the Liberian international who came over from Norway. But the problem is he hasn't really been used as a number nine because the system in which Mike Pecky initially wanted to play and same with, with Freddie Juarez is that the number nine has a decent amount of responsibility. Um, and so we haven't at always seen just a flat 4-2-3-1 with a point striker. And Sam has assets um, that, quite frankly, have not been seen at RSL since Robbie Finley left. And I think that's one of the problems. RSL, in a lot of ways, really doesn't know how to play with a true number nine. With the, Know how to play with a true egocentric number nine. Like, for example, if you threw Brian Fernandez into this team, RSL would completely have to change the way they play. And I, I think at times they've been unwilling to do so. And that's why you've seen a Corey Baird or you've seen a Dimir Krylock. And uh, with, without tipping my hand, I, I really have no idea what this team is going to look like on Saturday night because it could be uh, anything. For, I mean, the back four is pretty much set. I, I think it'll be Toya, Glad, uh, Nate Monuoha from QPR, Man City, Sunderland, Experience and Aaron Herrera in front of Nick Raimondo, Everton Louise and Kyle Beckerman. That, that's basically your defensive setup. But what happens in front of that, you know Albert's going to play, Albert Rusnak, but is he going to play as a true 10, or is he going to play on the left-hand side of that, that middle three? Jefferson uh, Sabrino's got the right-hand side locked in, and I think it really only depends for Freddie where he sees the weakness. Uh, when I, when, and Ross and I have kind of talked about the center-back dilemma at times for the Portland Timbers, I think Sam is a good asset to have against the Portland tenor, Timbers center backs because he brings an, a, a threat, a vertical threat to get in behind. He's strong. He's good in the air. He battles really well. He utilizes a, a, a bump first type of mentality when he's going in to try to bring a ball down with a defender tight on him. Um, but also Dimir Krylock, man, he, he's this little fox in the box. He's, he's a guy who's a late arriving player who gives you that aerial threat that can battle with the big center backs, but at the same time um, plays the role a little bit different. So I, I, he's, he's, you know, Freddie's got some decisions to make. We'll, we'll see what it looks like when the starting 11s come out, but um, you, you've got, you've got two ways to think about it. Do you want to battle early and then introduce Sam late? Or do you want to start with Sam 
let them control the center backs a little bit, maybe maybe threaten them a little bit. And then you can bring in the Bofo Saceros, the Platas, the Corey Baird type of players that can give you even more of a, of a speed combination threat to get in behind. So, Ross, uh, how do you see the attacking side for Portland entering this one? Yeah, that's interesting. I think to contrast with Dunny, where it's pretty set and just a couple decisions to make here and there, the, the one decision with Sam Johnson, I think the reverse with, with Simbers is what is that system going to look like? And in San Jose, the last match of the season, they almost went to a 4 diamond. And I say almost a 4-4-2 because they had the, this three with Andy Polo, Diego Chava, and Christian Paredes in front of the back four. And then Blanco was free to roam in front of those three players. And then you had a spree, a dive on a spree, and Mr. October, everybody's calling him, Glenn. And then Jeremy Abobasi out wide. I think that system, and I think I think uh, Giovanni Savarese, he got it really right. And I watched him in the, the session before that game just to make sure, how do we get around this man-marking system for San Jose? And I thought with a guy like Dairon Espria, who that was easily his best game as a Portland Timber, I think he <laughs> ran them riot at times. Even when it's one of those days, touches that he didn't mean were coming off for him, he just had himself a day. But I do think the system for San Jose suited Espria with his athletic ability, his running power. He was able to run past guys with San Jose. And San Jose, if, if they're not at it in their energy, their enthusiasm, if there's a little dip, then it can fall apart. And I think the Timbers were able to play for that. So my question, Mark, is what is the system going to look like for for Gio putting out a team? Does he stick with Espria? Um, Diego Valeri, he was out with a calf injury. Does does he come back in? The team are off today, so I'm going to be up at training tomorrow and and, and start to zero in and, and focus in and see how the players are getting on. Um, but Dion Espria, that's the X factor is what it comes down to. And I think a lot of fans, when they're calling him Mixler October for the goals that he has scored, uh, and there have been some beauties. Um can he put in that same type of performance? Can Jeremy Abobasi, can he carry the team? He scored 11 goals this year. He did miss quite a few as well. But still, he, he's playing off on the wing. He's playing up front. Can he go score the goals? Um, so those are, are the question marks, the certainties. Sebastian Blanco, you know that he's going to turn up. You know that he's capable of a big-time goal. And Diego Valeri, if he's going to be playing, you know the, the aura that he carries, the presence he carries. And he knows what a big game is all about. That's what I think the Timbers need to be able to hang their hat on is that they have the been there, done that players. And when it comes to big games, guys like a Blanco, guys like the Valeri, guys like a Chara, uh, Chara, you got to put him into the attack. He likes to spring loose at times, you know, they, they can come up with a big moment. And I think that's what the Timbers will be looking for. All right. Well, you guys have me pumped up for this one. Espria, he assisted on the opening goal, scored the game winner in the uh, decision day victory over San Jose three, uh, one gents. Thank you so much, uh, Brian Dunseth, uh, with RSL on the TV side, also Sirius XMFC. Listen to him every afternoon on Counterattack. And Ross Smith, the color analyst for Portland. Boys, uh, thanks so much. Enjoy the game. Thank you, guys. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, the winner of this next match we're going to talk about will be meeting the Supporters' Shield winners, LAFC, in the conference semifinals. Minnesota United. In their third season, they'll be playing their first playoff game, and they get to do it at home, Allianz Field. The Loons fell from second to fourth on decision day with a 1-0 loss at Seattle, but they're still at home. Now, the LA Galaxy, they lost their last two regular games to a pair of non-playoff teams, 4-3 at home to the Vancouver Whitecaps, and then at Houston, 4-2. So it's Minnesota 
L.A. First time they'll meet in the postseason, and uh, we've got a pair of journos from Pro Soccer USA to help preview this one. Kyle Eliason, who covers Minnesota United, and Brittany Pergel for the Galaxy. Well, welcome to you both. Uh, the home team gets the nod here. So, uh, Kyle, uh, first tell us about Allianz Field. Uh, I've been there once, uh, the Loons' first full season in the building. Uh, they only have one loss in 17 home matches, 10 wins, 6 draws. So I will ask you, has it reached the fortress level, or is that uh, still early to, to claim that? No, I think it has. Uh, the stadium's been built with a number of things in mind to try to aid that. The canopy was specifically designed to trap sound in, and then uh, the supporters section, the Wonder Wall, uh, was intentionally built out of metal and not concrete so you can hear all 6,000 fans in that section stomping and cheering. And the players and coach, uh, or head coach Adrian Heath have uh, all talked about how uh, much the crowd at Allianz is a 12th man. Yeah, so this Wonder Wall, get, just give us a brief history of it because it's, uh, for those who don't know, it's, it's a pretty cool story. Uh, Carl Craig was, uh, when they were in the second division, the NASL, he was their assistant coach for a time, and then when they knew they were moving up to MLS, they promoted their then head coach, Manny Lagos, who, uh, through different permutations, is, is the son of uh, kind of the founder of that club in spirit, uh, Buzz Lagos. When he was moved up to director of football, they promoted Carl Craig to manager. And um, there was a point in time uh, just before Bill McGuire stepped in and purchased the team uh, they were league-owned. Uh, the NASL needed eight teams to get sanctioned as a Division II side, and their uh, compromise or, or offer to Minnesota was join our league and then we'll run your team. Um, they ended up winning the NASL uh, Soccer Bowl that um, uh, as a league-owned team, and um, it was just kind of a thing originally between Carl Craig and the players. They would sing Wonderwall um, after victories, and there was a little behind the scenes YouTube documentary made of that championship season. And then when the fans saw uh, the, the players and, and Carl Craig singing Wonderwall, they started singing it after victories and it uh, became a tradition uh, at the national sports center out in Blaine. And that's carried over here to uh, the move to Allianz field. And that supporter section um, kind of play on words has now been named the Wonderwall as well. All right, uh, one more field question before we get to uh, Brittany, and she could talk about her field. The, 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 there was a concern, and you wrote a, a story about this. Uh, there was a Division Three football game scheduled on October the 19th at Allianz Field between St. Thomas and St. John's. Now, it probably doesn't, yeah, it probably doesn't mean anything to anybody outside the Twin Cities, but that is a, a huge, huge um, local rivalry, and they've drawn... Uh, I think 35,000 people to watch that game uh, when they played at the Twin Stadium Target Field. And um, St. Thomas is so good at, at football, they're being booted out of their Division Three conference by the rest of the conference. And they're flirting with going D1 now. Wow. But um, the, uh, and yeah, those two are, have been rivals for years and years and years. Um, they, the, the Tommies and the Johnnies, reach an agreement to play at Allianz Field, um, their annual meeting, and it might be one of the last now that uh, St. Thomas might no longer be D3. That, was, that, that agreement in principle was reached with Minnesota United before MLS adjusted the length of its regular season and prior to 
it changing the format of its playoffs. So there wasn't supposed to be a conflict. Now there is. The team was contractually obligated. I have, uh, we're all very, very curious to see what the field is going to look like come uh, the 20th because uh, a game of gridiron will have been played, you know, a little over 24 hours before kickoff. Yeah, let's set um, it up. It's a 1 o'clock. So this, uh, this college game is 1 o'clock on Saturday. Uh, local, I think I have this right, and then the Minnesota Galaxy game, the the MLS playoff game, seven thirty p.m. local the next day. So, but you also wrote that there was a plan to replace the grass field. So was that done, or is it being done? Yeah, it's done. Um, there were a number of. You, you, if you go back, you can find teams complaining about um, different about the how how firm the, the turf was over the course of the season. And what had happened, they, there was some sort of issue with the drainage system under the field, and water wasn't draining out, so it was kind of pooling underneath certain portions of the of the pitch, making them soggy. They identified that problem. They fixed the drainage system. They've relayed the field. Um, the field was not relayed specifically for the football team um, or the football game. It was relayed because it needed to be done, and they want the field to be in as good a condition as it possibly can be for their first playoff game at Allianz Field. Um, and it was going to have to be relayed uh, anyway because of the, the extent of the damage to the root system eventually. But um, hopefully that hopefully that helps the field recover a little bit or helps it hold up uh, a little bit better to that football game. But, um, it, yeah, again, um, everybody's kind of scratching their heads and uh, is a little bit apprehensive of uh, what the playing conditions are going to be like come the 20th. Wow. All right. Well, um, I'm sure Ebra will have something to say about that. Uh, Brittany, uh, let's well, where uh, the Galaxy play at home, Dignity Health Sports Park. Uh, are the Chargers still playing home games there? I believe they had one yesterday, actually. OK, so so, yeah. so both, <laughs> this is well, what, what is the field like? I don't know what the, the, the separation of games and, and uh, time to 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 sort that out but what is the what are the field conditions been like there this year with, with football um, being played this year it's been both football and it's still used as a concert venue from time to time so um i think that was kind of the worst of it was actually um a, a concert that was there the night before a game and so you could definitely see where the concert was on the the concert um stage was set up on the field um so basically an entire 18 yard box was almost dirt um, but for Chargers games, at least, I believe they've been scheduling them for the day after the Galaxy games, if I'm not mistaken, because I have seen several times leaving the stadium that they're setting up for the Chargers games the next day. Yeah. So they've been able to fix that a little bit, which has been nice for the team. All right. Well, nice little venue discussion with football, uh, American football and then football uh, intervening. Well, uh, Brittany, let's go back to the, the recent Vancouver match. So that, that was a home game, uh, 25,000 yeah. <laughs> strong at Dignity Health. Uh, the Galaxy had clinched midweek with a road win at RSL. Good win, 2-1, their third consecutive win. Then in this match, they were forced to have – there were three equalizer, uh, Ibrahimovic, Antuna, and uh, Pontius ended up making it 3-3. And then – in stoppage time, Michael Tironis scores on a breakaway. Just, I, you know, I look at the defending, and, and sometimes I'm wondering uh, just, uh, and, I, and I know that that's been a, a huge discussion point, the goals that are leaked. So what, is, what are some of the things that are being said, uh, 
uh, on the inside uh, regarding what, what's going on at the back in goal. I know Matt Lampson was in the game, uh, his only match this year in place of David Bingham. But even when Bingham's in, sometimes it's not going so well. Right. So, um, I mean, defense has definitely been a big issue all year. I know, um, I mean, it's actually been a big issue for the last couple of years. And a big part of that was um, the whole team defending, not just the back line. Um, I know that David Bingham led the league in saves this year, which is actually probably not a great stat given how the defense is doing. He's just taking on so many shots. But um, No, that's generally I mean, a very uh, dubious stat, but go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think from what um, head coach Gerald uh, Barros-Coloto said last week is kind of after the game against Real Salt Lake, the team kind of saw that as a resetting moment. Um, they kind of Their goal all season was to make the playoffs, something that they hadn't done since 2016. And so once they did that, they kind of used the last couple games of the season to reset, or at least that's what they're telling themselves now. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, there's just kind of I mean, uh Lampson played because of an injury to Bingham, but at the same time I think it was good for him to get a few minutes as well. Yeah, no question. Uh and the the decision day game at Houston, we're talking about Vancouver, uh the Galaxy were up two one. Christian Pavon, his goal in the fifty fourth minute, and then Albert at least went wild with a goal plus two assists in the final half hour. Said Houston winning that one four two. I what is it? You know, Ibra is uh, you know very open about these things. I mean, what what is he saying about this uh, this swoon at the end of the season? Even though there was you know a playoff qualification, right? So um, yeah, he's definitely frustrated. He's been pretty vocal about voicing his frustrations all year. But I think that uh, I think he's sticking with the the kind of message that we're setting the reset button. The playoffs are a whole new game now, and and really, you just got to qualify for the playoffs, and that's what they've done, and it's time to move forward from there. So, Kyle, uh, back to the uh, Minnesota side of things. I, I would imagine they're feeling uh, quite good about themselves, you know, getting into the playoffs, third season in the league, and uh, they're, uh, you know, they lose in Seattle on decision day, but that certainly is not disastrous to uh, drop a game there. And uh, their previous match was a 1-1 home draw uh, against the top seeds in the West LAFC. What was the feeling after that match, and how are they feeling going into this, uh, this game on the weekend? I think the feeling is generally positive. They, were, uh, they controlled their own destiny in terms of uh, potentially securing the second seed. And as you said, no great shame in a loss away to Seattle, but... Um, they, the, coming out of that game, they just used it as a, another point of emphasis that they feel that they're capable of playing with anybody. They beat LAFC uh, on the road, uh, even though that was pretty smash and grab. And then they went 1-1 with LAFC and had a couple chances late that they didn't capitalize on. So uh, they've, they've uh, held it up as a, a point that uh, they have just a, as good a shot to make a run in, in the MLS Cup playoffs as anyone else. But they had that chance to finish second, too. So even though, you know, you look at the whole, you look at the entire season and where they've come, that, uh, you know, they, they might even look at that as a, as, a, as a missed opportunity. We've got Kyle Eliason and Brittany Pergel uh, from Pro Soccer USA helping us preview Minnesota at home to the LA Galaxy coming up on Sunday in the MLS uh, playoffs. And 
with Minnesota, Adrian Heath. So uh, I recall, and Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't have the exact quote, so this, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this. But I do recall at one point after a game, and it wasn't going so well, he basically said something like, you know, well, what do you expect? I, I don't have the players the other teams have. Something like that, almost putting it on uh, the uh, the sporting director or those above him to, hey, get me more players, and then maybe we'll have a chance. At what point of the year was that, and, and how did uh, this thing turn around? I, I, that might not have been this year. Uh, that's been a constant refrain from Heath. Um, across the 2017 and 2018 seasons, um, uh, one or two more players in became a bit of a cliche. I think they made those moves in the off season. Um, really the turnaround, uh, has not come uh, via their attack, but, but, uh, shoring up their defense, they conceded over 70 goals, two seasons in a row. They only conceded, uh, I believe 43 the season, which was good for third place in the West. And I think, uh, a lot of that comes down to, adding Vito Minone, Ike Parra, and Ozzy Alonso. And Apara is in on the short list now for, for Defender of the Year. So uh, I think Heath did get the players that he's been asking for, and uh, he has turned in uh, a playoff berth. And uh, that has been the, the refrain uh, about the three-year plan where the front office has continually pleaded patience, with, uh, patience from the, the Minnesota fan base. Yeah, uh, Manone, I, I thought, you know, early on the jury was out a bit, but he's seventh in MLS with a 1.26 goals against average. So that's worked out quite well. It definitely has, yeah. And uh, you've got the, the fans completely behind him now. Um, I, I don't know uh, what you'll catch out in New York for, from the broadcast, but when he jogs out, uh, if he's playing in front of the Wonderwall in the first half, expect a, a big chorus of veto, veto, veto. And uh, he has the full confidence of his teammates, and I, I really can't think of any uh, particularly bad goal uh, he's conceded and makes a, a key saver to every game, it seems. So, Brittany, uh, if we look at the two results this year uh, in this series, and this is MLS scheduling at its best, they completed their season series on April 24th. I just, one of the things I just don't get. But anyway, Galaxy win the first match on March 16th, 3-2. And then the last time they met was at Allianz on April 24th, and it was a 0-0 draw. So the Galaxy did get results from both matches. I don't know if we could take away anything uh, from uh, from that. Uh, what do you think? Um. Yeah, I mean, with... I think I think a big story this year for the Galaxy has kind of been their unpredictability, and uh, that being so far back, it's kind of hard to to translate that this far forward in the season. I will say that um, it looks like uh, designated player Roman Alessandrini is um, he's expected to at least be in the 18-man roster for this match. Um, wow, that's huge! Is, that's huge news. Absolutely, because um, he went out in I believe March or so. So, um, yeah, he's, uh, Kulitza said he wasn't sure if he'd be starting, but he'd definitely be in the 18. So I think that's definitely a game changer for this one. Well, the guy we know that'll be in there is Latan Ibrahimovic. 30 goals. If Carlos Vela hadn't gone crazy this year, uh, Ibra could have well been a uh, golden boot uh, in MLS. And, you know, he's a goal a game, and it's really been uh, remarkable. I mean, is he, 
is he, is he uh, has he reached folk hero status uh, in L.A.? How do they uh, how do they treat him and respond to him? I I love him, you know, but occasionally, uh, you know, he's got some things to say that uh, can rub people the wrong way. Yeah, I think that uh, his goals for the team kind of supersede that for <laughs> a lot of Galaxy fans, um, it, where the, the comments are kind of just part of the show, and and Galaxy fans are benefiting from what he's doing on the field. Uh, I will say that for the upcoming match in Minnesota, the weather is going to be big. Um, just with him not playing very often in the heat, I know Houston was a big problem for him uh, because of how hot it was. But in Minnesota, I think that the conditions are going to be a lot closer to what he's comfortable with. So I expect to see him moving around a bit more. What What is the – do we have an extended forecast at Minnesota? What's going on there? Anybody know, I'm Kyle? Not... I'm not. I'm not quite sure. A week out, you know, I would probably expect it to dip into the 40s around kickoff. All right, getting chilly in the Midwest. So that's Ebra. Now, the uh, how about the coach, uh, Brittany? Uh, well, certainly a guy who uh, knows MLS from playing. Won an MLS Cup with Columbus Crew, with the uh, the late Siggy Schmidt coaching. Uh, that was 2008. But Guillermo Barros Scoloto. So he here he comes from Boca Juniors and the Copa Lipidadores final to MLS. I, I wonder, what has his experience been like as a coach? What, what does he say? Um, he's, been, he's been very thorough with his players. I think it's been, um, it's been seen from very early on that things are starting to click. It's a fast-paced, um, very attacking-minded style of play. He's been able to bring in a few pieces. Uh, Christian Bivone, Joe Corona, who actually won't be in this one due to injury. Um, but um, he's definitely been been uh, pushing the team forward to a more attacking style and just kind of slowly making those adjustments. And I think that's uh, slowly coming into pace. While the Galaxy did allow 59 goals this season, they did score 58, which is higher than they've done in the last few years, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, yeah, it's just been a weird balance for the team and, but he's definitely been putting his style on the on the field. And what is his? Uh, does he ever comment about the uh, the league, the scheduling? I mean, you know, or is he just used to it because he uh, he he played in the league. He played in over 130 matches with Columbus. So I I know he's familiar with it. a lot of times these South Americans or European coaches that come in. They uh, they struggle with MLS. How's he handling it? Um, yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. He he knows the structure very well. Um, Actually, last week in training, um, we asked him about the struggles of the, the one-and-done playoff game and um, that the game's most likely being on the road for the Galaxy when that's where they struggled most of the year. And he came back right away with um, the, the years past playoffs where this team won on the road and this team won on the road. He had all of the <laughs> examples from the last few years. So he's definitely done his research and and he's using his experience with his time in the league to kind of balance that all out. So, Brittany, uh, yeah, one more thing on uh, L.A., and you, you mentioned an injury to uh, Joe Corona. Uh, are there any other uh, injury concerns for L.A. Uh, coming into the match? Um, the only other one I can think of is, I believe, Fabio Alvarez is still questionable. I, I don't remember his status off the top of my head, but um, I know he was on the bench if i'm not mistaken okay how about on the minnesota side kyle uh what is the uh, what's the health of the club 
uh, going into their uh, first playoff game. Should be a clean bill of health, and everybody should be available to Heath. Um, I know they've been taking it easy with Opara uh, in training this week, but uh, they don't have any concerns about him suiting up. And then uh, a couple of guys of note, I mean, Darwin Quintero. I mean, there's always been so much expected of him since his arrival in the league in Minnesota. Uh, he's got 10 goals, five assists. What's, what's the assessment of him? Has he, uh, has, he, has he reached his potential? Is there still a lot more to go? Uh, what does Adrian Heath say? What does Darwin say? It's, it's been a little bit of a frustrating season. Um, if you, you, know, you look at maybe a combined goals and assists, he had uh, 26 last season and 27 starts. And as you just mentioned, he had 15 this season and 26 starts. Um, they, they are hoping that he, he finds his best form in the playoffs here. Uh, and they've been trying to get him back on track. I know Heath has moved him around a little bit. Um, he's played plenty uh, behind striker in his preferred position. They pushed him out on the wing uh, against Seattle to start. Um, the, the offense has, has been a little bit tricky. It's been sluggish. Um, I think it's 10 goals in their last 10 league games, 16 goals in the last 15 league games. And the, the second leading scorer is Ethan Finley with seven goals. So um, maybe just kind of symptomatic of the team. They, they uh, The defense has been a, a nice, impressive, uh, consistent um <laughs> facet of the game but but the attack has been uh, a little bit anemic as of late mason toy it looked like he was going to just like explode and come into his own but uh you know it it, it really he kind of settled in again is it a problem with finishing uh, uh creating the opportunities uh what's i think what's his assessment i think it's just yeah i think it's just growing pains for a, for a 20 year old um he can't even drink legally yet um so yeah, you see, um, he's learning where to be. He's learning where to make his runs, um, and when he's on form, he's fantastic. Uh, if you that's that's the real question for for uh, Sunday, um, the playoff game. It's Rodriguez has five goals in about seventeen hundred minutes. Toy has six goals in a little over eight hundred. But um, Rodriguez can get in there and and help them. Uh, retain possession and bring other people into the attack toys going to look to run off of the back shoulder of uh, one of the two center backs that he's facing. Um, it's just, uh, that, I, that's probably, uh, probably the biggest decision Heath has to make. And, and if he wants to gamble on uh, it being an on night for toy or not. And uh, Brittany, any uh, lineup questions? Uh, yeah. Is there, are, are there any difficult uh... Uh, decisions for the coach do you think in in the 11 for uh, for the galaxy um i think that the attacking um set is pretty much uh nailed down at this point in the season but defensively um it's kind of been a while since there's been a set back four so that's kind of always up to whoever does best in training um i think that He's kind of been testing different defensive combinations all year, so it's not not completely certain who will be starting for that one. Well, if, it, if you look at the Houston game last half hour, there might be some adjustments based on that. That was Romney, Balenta, Gonzalez, <laughs> and uh, Felcher, uh, the back four. Then Steris, we've seen him play fullback in central defense. Yeah, definitely some decisions uh, for Scolotto there. Well, I uh, want to get uh, each of your uh, predictions on this one. Uh, Brittany, I'll let you go first. What, what do you think uh, 
what do you got as a final and why? Um, so final score, I think um, I'm going to go with a 3-2 Galaxy win. Um, wow. I think that, yeah, I think that the Galaxy defense is not definitely not going to get a shutout. And I think it's going to be both teams fighting for their lives. But I think that the extra factor is the Galaxy going into this game knowing that LESD is waiting for them in the next round or waiting for whoever's winning. And I think they're going to do what they can to get there. So I think that's going to be their extra push. All right. Extra motivation for the Galaxy, maybe. Uh, What do you think, Kyle? This is a really tough one to predict. Um, And uh, I am a native Minnesotan, so I'm a bit pessimistic. But I'm thinking (laughs) maybe, I think think maybe a 1-0 Galaxy win. I really worry about the the playing conditions. Um, But uh, for everybody, uh, playing conditions allowing both teams to express themselves. But um, for everybody in Minnesota, I would be uh, happy to be proven wrong. Yeah, the playing conditions with a football game. What, about a dozen hours earlier? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, and the weather, I hope there's no rain in the forecast because that could really do some damage. You said it might be in the 40s. We're going to have to check that out. But regardless, uh, we're hoping for pristine conditions and a a great match. Uh, Thanks to you both. Brittany Pergel covering uh, the LA Galaxy for Pro Soccer USA and Kyle Eliason doing the same uh, for Minnesota United. Thanks to you both and uh, enjoy the weekend. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. Minnesota will host the LA Galaxy Sunday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. So there you have it. Our first episode this week previewed the East, today the West, both available on iTunes, TuneIn, and Spotify. Subscribe, and I'd really enjoy some feedback as well. Special thanks today to Matt Pence, Armand Kafai, Brian Dunseth, Ross Smith, Kyle Eliason, and Brittany Pergel. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.